Ah, oh, it's nice to sing together. It's nice to be together. It's nice to worship God together. Amen? Uh, before we dive in this morning, I just want to inform you all of a, if you're a member of this church, we have a, a family meeting on November 20th, which will be in this room after our service. And that is, we have a habit of getting together as a church every year and talking about who we are and what we're doing and where we're going. And, and we've got a lot of exciting things at that meeting. Our family meeting rhythm was disrupted during uh, COVID and outdoors and everything was a little crazy, but um, we're back to getting into things uh, normally now. And so I hope you'd mark your calendars if you're a member of this church for November 20th uh, to join us for our family meeting. That should be a great time. In a in addition, just uh, our serve day is coming up, and that will be wonderful. That's uh, just in a couple weeks here on Saturday, and uh, that's an opportunity to really serve the city. We don't exist just for our own sake. We, we, want to, we feel like as God's people, we are called to uh, serve each other, but also to serve the city, and that's an opportunity to do that and also to learn more about opportunities and ways you can serve when we're not serving together as a church. So that's a great time. I hope you'd mark your calendars for that as well. Okay, um, if I didn't introduce myself already, my name is Trevor, and, uh, and it is good to be with you. And if you're new and, you're, and you're, you're visiting for the first time, we hope that you would feel welcome, that you'd feel the welcome and the radical hospitality of Christ embodied in our church. Uh, we are in a sermon series together on the book of Judges. That's an Old Testament book. If you have a Bible, you could open up to Judges. That would be wonderful. That's where we'll spend some time this morning. We're going to cover a couple of chapters this morning. And if you have just, if you're brand new or you haven't been following along, Judges is a book that, as I said in the beginning, week after week after week gets darker. And I would argue that today's story um, and, and the text today and what it has to teach us is among the saddest stories in the entire Old Testament. It's a really tricky story if you're not familiar with it. Uh, by the end of this morning, our hope is that you would be. Our goal in a text like Judges Together as a church, if you're curious about what, why Judges and what are we doing, is we believe that it's our responsibility to teach and to preach and to learn from the whole counsel of God. From Genesis to Revelation, and my job and, and our job in teaching is to proclaim God's word to you, not my opinion, not my ideas, but God's very word. And if you leave um, each, each time you gather, if you leave with a greater understanding of God's word and of God himself, then we will have served you well. But not if it's merely information, it must be transformative. For who among us wants just more information? Um, we've got enough information, um, sometimes wrong information, as we'll talk about this morning. But information is not enough. God is not interested in stuffing you with information. He is interested in changing your hearts forever. And so what we're after is transformation. My hope is that last week when you were with us, you learned about Abimelech. And maybe you knew nothing about Abimelech, and now you've got some familiarity with Abimelech. And this week, it's my hope that you would learn about Jephthah. That's how uh, his name is pronounced, Jephthah. You can think of it as Jeff the Great or Jeff the Confused or Jeff the Not-So-Great. Just leave off that last thing and you get Jephthah. And Jephthah is who we will be looking at this morning together. 
Judges as a book, again, really briefly for those of you who are joining us, is a book about God's people entering into the promised land where in which they were instructed to drive out the Canaanites, a, a group of people and multiple groups of people who were living in the land before they got there, who were worshiping all kinds of different gods with all kinds of despicable practices. And God said, I'm giving you this land and you go into it and it's to be your land, you're to be my people, you're to be a light to the nations. When people see you, they will understand who I am, God says. And God's people move in, and rather than driving out the Canaanites, they decide to move next door to the Canaanites. And God says, that's not what I asked you to do. And God says, because you failed to do that, what's going to happen is you're going to begin to blend your view of who I am, and you're going to blend it with the view that the Canaanites think about their multitude of, of gods that they worship, and therefore it's going to draw you away from me, and you won't be my distinct people. In the beginning of Judges, that happens a little bit, and as the judge, book of Judges goes on, it happens more and more and more and more. And every time God's people find themselves in a heap of trouble, they cry out to God, and God will send a rescuer, a leader, a judge. That doesn't mean someone who sits on a bench with a gavel, just it means a leader. God sends a rescuer to rescue his people, and then there's a time of peace, and then the whole cycle continues again. And so this morning, we are going to look at uh, Judges 10, verses 6, all the way through Judges 12, verses 7. And we'll look at the story of one of these judges, one of these heroes, who is more flawed than others are, by, you know, without a doubt. And he'll, we'll spend our time with him and with Israel this morning. So again, if you've got a Bible, Judges chapter 10, let me open there, and we will dive into our text together. I want to begin with a question that I hope that you've thought about, or maybe you've never thought about, and I hope that you would think about it, which is, is it, does it matter if we get the character of God right? Is that an important thing? Um, you know, we discover recently that there are people who are arguing over whether or not we've got the character of Ariel from The Little Mermaid right. That seems to be a hot topic today. <laughs> or other people who have seemed to be really frustrated about whether or not we've got the voice of Mario right in a new Mario film that's coming out. How Italian should this Japanese-Italian plumber video game character be in the feature film that people are excited about? Um, these conversations don't, don't seem to matter as much as the question, does it matter if we get the character of God right? But I would imagine that all of us would agree that if God is God, that it matters if we get God right. That it's important that we get the character of God right. I mean, we like to be understood, don't we? We like it when people understand us. I mean, many of you get irritated when you're at a restaurant and you're very clear with the waiter about what it is that you've ordered and they bring you the wrong thing. You said, no, I didn't order that. I ordered this other thing. I'm not the kind of person who would order my steak well done. What kind of maniac do you think I am? <laughs> we want to be understood. We want people in our lives to know who we are to get our character and our attributes. And if it's true for us, how much more must it be true of God? Does it matter what we think about God? I argue that it does. I argue that it's the most important thing is that we get the character of God right. You know, we partner with After Hours, um, and uh, Mara was just up here sharing about it. Um, 
G.K. Chesterton once said that uh, 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 a man who is knocking on the door of a brothel is looking for the love of God. I, I would argue that your biggest problems, your, all your problems can be kind of connected to your lack of understanding of who God is. Maybe you don't know how holy he is. Maybe you don't know how gracious he is. Maybe you don't know how much God truly loves you. Maybe you don't know the depth of his forgiveness. You don't know the character of God as much as you should. And so we gather this morning to worship God and to sing songs to God and to pray to God and also to grow in our knowledge of God, not just for knowledge, but so that we might strengthen our relationship with the God who made us and so that we might be transformed as his people. So wherever you're at this morning, whether or not you are a Christian or if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I hope at the very least you would understand that Getting God's character, if God is God, understanding God rightly really matters. And, and if we fail to do that, there's all kinds of consequences. We think of what the, the People's Temple with Jim Jones or David Koresh in Texas years ago or the Children of God cult, all cults that are established by leaders who have somehow twisted the very character and nature of God to their own benefit to the exploitation of others, leading to disastrous consequences. And the reason I ask that question is because, as I've already stated, Israel is beginning to be confused about who God is. And this morning, we will see the consequences of that, and hopefully we will learn something about ourselves and about the very character of the God in whom we worship. So this is Judges chapter 10, verses 6 and following. The story picks up after Abimelech has died, we met two judges, um, the last one was Jair, and now we head into Jephthah. I'll talk about the text, and as I go, I'll draw some things out, and then I'll, uh, like last week, I'll have a few pointed remarks at the end, and that's how we'll spend our time. This is the text. It's in the NIV version. If you've got it in front of you in a different version, that's great. Judges 10, 6-8 says this. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This is the repeated pattern. They served the Baals, they served the gods, and the Ashtoreths, and the gods of Aram, and the gods of Sidon, and the gods of Moab, and the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. So at this point, Israel is now serving more gods than just Yahweh, just God. They're serving all kinds of gods. And it says, because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them, which means he gave them over. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. Israel had been saved from themselves under Abimelech. They had a nice period of good leadership. And then once again, they started worshiping other gods. And every time they start worshiping some other god, they end up being attacked by the people who worship that god. They start worshiping the gods of the Ammonites and the Philistines. And what happens next? The gods of the, the Philistines and the Ammonites come in and they start oppressing Israel. They are attacked. They are enslaved. 
God has told them, worship me alone. And they say, we want you, but we also want all these other gods as well. And every time they give themselves over to these idols, they become enslaved. Some of you know that um, the Ten Commandments includes this, this command that we ought not to worship God in any sort of idolatrous form. This is a command that God says, not only are you to worship me alone, you're not to worship me as you imagine me, you're to worship me as I am. One person famously said that God created us in his own image and then we kindly return the favor. We make God how we want God to be. We worship God how we want God to be. And sometimes it's a mixture of worshiping God and other things. And sometimes God takes a secondary seat to other things, other idols that we, that we want to worship. Israel had God, but he wasn't enough. They needed all of these other things, and their idolatry leads to enslavement. An idol might be defined as anything that we worship more than God. I imagine that very none of you probably have little statues pointed away in your bedroom somewhere that you bow down to at some point in the day asking for things, but I, I bet that most of you have things in your life that you say, yes, God is important, but if I really had these other things, then my life would be truly good. Maybe it's success or power or security or safety. Idolatry often looks good. It looks like, God, I, I just want that thing. If I have you, that's nice. But if I just get that thing, then I'll be truly satisfied. That looks nice. But the problem is it leads to slavery as it does to Israel. And what happens is sometimes we even get the things that we desire. And it still leads to more difficulty. Some of us, we, we have a money problem. And then we get more money and we think, oh, I... I just need more money. That's, that's what I need. Or, or some of us, we have a, a, a marriage problem, and we say, I'm in a marriage problem, and then I'm going to get divorced, and I'm going to get married to someone else, and then, then things don't go well in that relationship, and we think, you know what the solution is? It's a new marriage. Some of us have a job problem. We have a job, and, and we go, oh, this job's not working out. I need a better job, and we leave. We get a better job, and that doesn't work out. And we need a better job, and it doesn't work out. And we wake up every day going, like, we just need to get the perfect job. If I just had the perfect job, then I would be happy. You know what? I need another job. Our hearts are weird because they create these things that we think that we need and we want. If we just had them, then we'd be happy. And then sometimes we get them, and then we, we, we decide that they don't work, and then we decide that we just need more of them. We double down. Some of you in this room are unhappy. You've entered into our church service unhappy this morning. And maybe the reason that you're unhappy is not because you haven't gotten what you want, but because happiness isn't found in that in the first place. God gives them over. He allows these other gods to own them, these other peoples to own them. And God's like, if you want something more than me, you can have it. And so let's see how merciful and how kind and how loving and how enlightening those other gods are for you. Think of those things you desire. Are those things, are they really that merciful? Are they really that kind? Is money really going to be there for you forever? Is that job going to be there forever? Everything's awful. Israel is oppressed, and so they cry out to God. 
verse 10, the Israelites cry out to the Lord and they said, God, we've sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. Now that's true. And you'd think here, if you just read this, you'd think that God's going to go, fine, I, I, I will rescue you once again. But God says something interesting. He, he replies in verse 11, hey, when the Egyptians and the Amorites and the Ammonites and the Philistines and the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the, and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried to me for help, didn't I save you? God says, you cried to help and I saved you, didn't I? But you've forsaken me and you've served other gods, so I'm not going to save you anymore. Go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you when, when you're in trouble. Now, this is the kind of thing we're not used to hearing from God. But I want you to see what's happening. Israel comes to God, and, and while it looks as though they're crying out to God is one of repentance, it isn't. And God sees right through their cry. They're not turning to God because they're sorry. They're turning to God because they don't like the consequences. Have you ever done that? You ever said, God, please rescue, you, rescue me, not because what I did was so terrible, but because I am dealing with some consequences I don't want to be dealing with. So if you could just deliver me from this situation, I'll be back at it again. And God says, that's, that's, I see through this. You come to me and you say, save us from these consequences. And God says, I'm not going to save you this time. Why don't you cry out to the gods you've been worshiping to save you? Well, Israel responds by, by having genuine repentance. In verse 15, the Israelites say to the Lord, Lord, we've sinned, and this is important, do with us whatever you think is best. That is the heart of repentance. Do, do whatever. God, we've made a mistake, so whatever you think is best. But we want you to rescue us. I'm not going to lie to you, God. We want you to rescue. Please rescue me, but just do whatever is best. There is a massive difference between the way that they confess um, in a few verses ago in verse 10 and the way they confess here. Early on, they confess about their frustration with the consequences. Here, their frustration is, is recognizing that they have done what is wrong and they just want God because they believe that God knows what is best. Let me just land this for you for a moment. There is a massive difference between you saying, God, help me get out of these consequences, and you saying, God, please forgive me. I will accept whatever consequences are there. I just want you. One of those is declaring, God, it's not that I actually want you. I just don't want to deal with the consequences. And the other one says, God, I, I want you more than anything. One of those is genuine repentance. And one of those is not. And we've got to be honest with ourselves that there's a lot of times where we cry out to God and we actually just don't want to deal with the consequences. We're hovered over a toilet bowl at one in the morning and we're just saying, God, I promise if you get me out of this, I'll never drink again. We don't really want God. We just don't want to deal with the consequences. But here, Israel says, God, we've sinned, so do whatever you think is best, but just rescue us. And so, and then it says in verse 16, then they got rid of the foreign gods. Look at that. They don't just say, God, rescue us. They actually get rid of the things that they are worshiping. 
Genuine repentance isn't just, God, help me. It's also, I, God, I, have, I have a desire to get rid of the things that are enslaving me. I'm going to turn from the things that are disrupting my life. And then God, it says, could bear Israel's misery no longer. God made a decision to relent, and God decides to rescue his people. God responds with mercy. And so God is going to be merciful. His people are once again, they're oppressed by all kinds of groups. And what is God going to do? What does God do to rescue his people in the book of Judges? He picks a judge. And it happens here once again. As you're asking the question, who is God going to use to rescue and save his people? And here we meet Jephthah. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. Jephthah is a mighty warrior. His father is Gilead. His mother's a prostitute. His, he has other brothers. They have rejected him. They have sent him away. They have said to him, you're not going to get any inheritance in our family, Jephthah, because you're the son of of another woman. You're the son of the prostitute. He is not the cream of the crop. He's kind of a brute. He's kind of a fighter. He's an illegitimate son. He's hated by his brothers. He's a part of a dysfunctional family, to say the least. And so what does he do? Jephthah fled from his brothers, and he settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Jephthah He's got idiot friends. He's a dysfunctional. His brothers kicked him out. He's got he's got he's bad family. He's strong, um, and he surrounds himself with idiots. That's scoundrels, right? The Bible says a gang of scoundrels are. He's kind of like this this sort of mob boss living in Tobes, sort of like a pirate. And and what happens is the brothers and Israel realize. Hey, we need help in the situation, and you're a mighty warrior. So in verses 4 to 11, they come to him, and they say, Jephthah, lead our army. And he says, don't you guys, don't you guys hate me? You just want to use me because you're in trouble. And they say, no, Jephthah, we want you to be our judge and our leader after you're victorious. Please rescue us. Please lead us. And he says, are you sure? And they say, yes. So he agrees. But Jephthah does not immediately go to war. He does not immediately take the mantle of God's people, and he does not immediately take it up to the Ammonites. The first thing he does is he tries for a peaceful resolution. So in Judges 11, verse 12, Jephthah, he sends messengers to the Ammonite king. And this is the question he asks the Ammonite king. He says, why are you attacking us? And the king of the Ammonites answers Jephthah's messengers and says, here's the deal, Jephthah. When Israel came out of Egypt, they took away our land. They took it from the Arnon to the Jabbok and all the way to the Jordan. So now what we're asking of you is to give it back peacefully. He says, why, why are you attacking us? And the king of Ammon says, this is our land. It belongs to us. It used to belong to us. And then Jephthah gives this big response that we won't move through. It's verses 15 through 27 of Judges 11. And Jephthah says three things quickly. He says, first of all, one, no way. He says, we won the land from the Amorites after they attacked us. 
Secondly, God gave it to us when we defeated them. Your God gives you stuff. Our God gives us stuff too. And so it's, it's here, it's kind of this interesting thing because it's the first moment in the text where you start realizing, wait, Jephthah is starting to talk about the other gods with a kind of equality with his own God that is troubling. But he says, your God gives you stuff, our God gives you stuff, this is our land. And then thirdly, Jephthah says, Moab was really okay with us having this land. Your ancestors were okay with us having it. Why are you all of a sudden now wanting it back? Well, he tries these peace talks, but they don't work. The king of Ammon, in verse 28, paid no attention to the message that Jephthah sent him. He doesn't pay attention. And then you get this, this moment, and this is like, this is the moment if you're reading Judges 11. Like, this is it. This is where things get real dark, real dark. Verse 29, after peace talks have failed between Jephthah and the king of the Ammonites, it says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Now, if you're reading Judges, every time the Spirit of the Lord comes upon a judge, it's over. It's over. Victory is theirs. You see it all throughout the Old Testament. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon someone, and it's like, you better get out of their way, because that means God is with them, and whatever God has set out to do will be done. So here you get to Judges 11, 29. The Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He's the judge. He's the ruler. It's over for the Ammonites. It's over for the Philistines. He crossed Gilead. He crossed Manasseh. He passed through Mitzpah of Gilead. And from there, he advanced against the Ammonites. It's over. It's over. God has now picked his winner. He has got Jephthah. Jephthah is on the move. God's hand is on him. He has heard their misery. He is going to deliver them as he always does. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. This is so important that you get this. Because then something happens in verse 30 that should shake you. In verse 29, Jephthah has the Spirit of the Lord upon him. And in verse 30, it says this, and Jephthah made a vow. Wait, Jephthah, you already have God's hand upon you. What are you doing? You know what? I got to make a vow. What's the vow, Jephthah? If you give the Ammonites into my hands. Now, what, what should Jephthah know? He should know that God is with him and victory is his. That's what God promises to do and that's what God does. But Jephthah doesn't believe it. He says, if you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. What? What are you doing? You, what? Do you think you worship a god that accepts human sacrifice? God explicitly says that is not what I do. God has shown that and taught that over and over again. What, what are you doing? My hand is upon you, Jephthah. You're the chosen judge. Yeah, but there's these other gods, and the way that they are pleased is by making vows and sacrificing people. Jephthah, what are you doing? Well, Jephthah's victorious, as he was always going to be. And Jephthah and Israel are celebrating. And Jephthah had made this vow that 
when I get home, and what we likely think here is that Jephthah is maybe expecting one of his servants to come out, and he's just going to sacrifice one of his servants to please God. That's not what happens. When Jephthah returned home victorious in battle in Mitzvah, who should come out to meet him? But his daughter. And she's dancing. Dad, you did it. We won. God is with us. She's dancing to the sound of timbrels. She's celebrating that her father has returned home. She's an only child. She doesn't have brothers or sisters. She's longing to see her father again victorious. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and he cried and he said, Oh no, my daughter, you've brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you have promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites, but grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and they wept because she would never marry. And after two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. Jephthah's daughter insists, Dad, you got to keep your vow. You made a vow, you got to keep your vow. So she mourns for two months, and then Jephthah takes his daughter's life. There is no way when you were on the way to church this morning did you think this is the kind of story we were talking about. I told you Judges is dark. I told you we're going to get into some strange territory. It raises all kinds of questions. Why does he make the vow? Why does he fulfill the vow? And people have wrestled with this different ways. Recent commentators have said, well, maybe it was an animal. Maybe he thought he was talking about an animal, but for a lot of reasons, including the way that the Hebrew language is constructed, that doesn't seem to be the case at all. Others have said, well, maybe he's really just talking about her giving up her virginity. That seems to be a big thing in the text. But that feels more like an attempt to escape the horrifying nature of what happens as a way of assuaging the difficulty of this text that we face. What you need to see and I want you to see is that the Spirit of God was on Jephthah, was with him. God was going to lead him to victory. But then he feels the need to pay God off. It's not a vow. It's a bribe. He's treating God the way that the pagans treated their own gods. He has been so corrupted that he doesn't know the character of the God he worships. The pagan gods were bought off all the time. The pagans practiced human sacrifice regularly to honor the power of their gods. It was one of the way you worshipped. You're going to worship God by sacrificing people. 
But the true God, the God of the Bible, has said that he wants us to live in right relationship with him. And that if there were going to be any sacrifices to be made, he was going to be the one to make it. God had already decided to save his people. Jephthah has zero concept of God's grace. Here's what Jephthah should have said. He should have said, God, you would never give me victory if I made this sacrifice. The victory is your loving kindness given to us for our repentance. We cannot purchase your favor. We cannot earn your favor. We repent of, I repent of making this vow in the first place. Because you do not have to make promises to earn the favor of God. If you don't know this about God, let me make this abundantly clear to you. The Bible from Genesis to Revelation teaches that we do not earn the favor of God by something we do. We get God's favor because of God's grace given to us, done through and offered through his son Jesus. None of us stands before God and says, God, I have earned your grace. It wouldn't be grace if it was earned. We can't earn it. You don't have to ever make promises to God in order to earn his favor. You can't pay God off. You can't say, God, if you give me this, I'll give you this amount of money. So that, here, God, I'll give you this amount of money and then you'll approve of me. If I give you this kind of commitment, then finally you'll approve of me. The Bible teaches you can't do anything to earn God's favor. It is a gift received by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the only deal that God makes is that he takes your sin and he gives you his righteousness. That's the only deal any of you can make with God this morning. You give him your sin, he gives you his righteousness. And you go, but I don't deserve it. I, I gotta give him something. I gotta pay him with something. You could, it's an insult to try to pay God with anything for he is too great to be paid off by anything. The gospel and the good news of the gospel is that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Jephthah has been so corrupted by the world's view of God that he has missed something that, that is so contrary to the very nature and character of God. Let me just say, brothers and sisters, we are more affected by the world's view of God often than by how God reveals himself to us. The culture has affected us way more than we think that it has. Jephthah ignores Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. How is it that he comes to the conclusion that God wants human sacrifice? It's because he's completely ignored how God has revealed himself. He has ignored the character of God, the sacredness of human life. The Bible corrects our blind spots about God. If you want to make sure you are worshiping God as God presents himself, and not the God that has been created by our culture or the one that we tend to create, you have got to make sure that you are in God's word, allowing God to correct your view of him for your good and his glory. The Ephraimites missed out on the victory. They are angry. They threaten Jephthah in chapter 12. The Gileads and the Ephraimites go to war. 42,000 people die. And at the end of 
Judges 12, 7, it says that Jephthah led Israel for six years and then he died and he was buried. 42,000 people die and this young virgin girl is sacrificed because someone didn't take the time to understand God properly. He has no concept of God's grace. And I sometimes think, I mean, I often think that we don't either. I think I've told this before, but I'm going to tell it again for those of you who haven't heard. I want you to imagine for a moment that the day that my wife and I got married, um, when my, my wife and I got married, my, my mother uh, did this really cool thing. She put together a, a, a recipe book of all the recipes I loved as a child growing up. And it sits in our home, and it's a red book, and it's got, like, my grandmother's recipes. It's got on both sides. It's got special family traditions. It's got them all kind of typed out. It's got a picture of me and my mom cooking when I was little. And it's this awesome recipe book so that when Amber and I got married, um, we could then uh, cook these. We keep some of these traditions in the family. And I want you to imagine for a moment that, um, that I was getting married to Amber, and on our wedding day, I stood next to her and looked into her eyes, and before we're about to commit our lives to one another, I said to her, Amber, I love you. I want to show you something that my, my mom gave us. And I, I imagine I go and I get this recipe book. And I, I imagine I give it to Amber, and I say, here's what I want to do. I love you so much. This recipe book super important to me. It shows me you love me. So I'm not going to give you my ring yet. But here's what I'll do. We're going to live together 20, 30 years. And you're going to cook the recipes in that book. <laughs> here's the deal. If you cook them perfectly, I'll give you a ring. And I'll be your husband. Now, if I was in our wedding and I stood before my family and friends and said, hey, I got a cookbook, made a deal. She cooks it perfectly for 20 years for me and for our family. And I'm going to give her a ring and we're going to be married. But she's got to cook it perfectly. You all would look at me and, and I think you would think that I was just a, you'd think I was the worst. <laughs> By show of hands, how many of you think I was the worst if I did that? Honestly, honestly. Do you understand that that's how our world thinks about God? Do you get that? That our world thinks that God stands apart from them and says, follow this book, do it perfectly, and then you'll have me. That's how they think about God. But that is not how God reveals himself. God unites himself to us before we cook anything. Before we do anything right. Before we do anything well, he gives Jesus to us while we were in our sin. You see, if I make my unity to my wife contingent on her perfection, imagine her each recipe, cooking it, slaving, wondering if it's perfect, wondering where we will stand, wondering if she will get my commitment, wondering if she will get my love. But imagine how she will cook if she knows that no matter what she does, she already has it. How you think about God really matters. And the problem with most of the people in your life is that they just think about God wrongly. 
And they don't want to step a foot into this place because they think that this place, our church, our primary message is if you do good, God loves you. And if you don't, tough luck. But that is not what we proclaim. What we proclaim week in and week out is that we show up in here, all of us being able to stand before God and say, God, I have not loved you or my neighbor as I should, and I do not deserve your grace, but you give it to me again and again and again because you are a God of love. And we receive that, and it transforms us. Jephthah gets God totally wrong. And as we read throughout the Bible again and again, we need someone better than Jephthah. We need a judge that isn't, have a, doesn't have a twisted view of God, but has an honest, good view of God, the right view of God. We need, we need a judge who is God himself. Jesus is the perfect judge. He perfectly represents us. He perfectly represents the Father. He's despised by his family, like Jephthah. But instead of taking human sacrifice, he gives up his own life for us. Jesus is the sacrifice of God for our salvation. Jesus is God's work done on our behalf, received by grace through faith. Friends, if you're here this morning and you do not believe in God or you are not a believer in Christianity, I beg of you to take serious the question, does it matter how we think about God? And my hope is that you would understand it really does. And if you want to know more about God, that you would ask questions, every question. I love, any question you've got, I want to talk about. And I'd love to give you a Bible, because we believe that a Bible is God's very word. It reveals who he is to us. And we read that book, not just because we're supposed to, but so that we might know God better, because knowing God really matters. Amen? Let's pray. God, we once again recognize that you, you want us to be in relationship with you. And some of us are so arrogant to think that we can create you and then relate to you on our terms. But that makes you not God, it makes us God. And all of us make bad gods. So help us to lay down our pride and instead to pursue you as God of the universe, revealed in Scripture and in the person of Jesus. Help us to know your character, your love, your mercy, your forgiveness, your compassion, your kindness. Yes, your justice. Yes, your, your, your righteousness. Yes, your wrath even, your anger. Help us to know the things that you don't like and the things that you love. And help us to see all the while that there's nothing we can do to earn your love. It is all grace. It always has been. It always will be. So help us to fall on our knees this morning, thanking you for your grace. That we try to pay you off, we try to bribe you, we try to give you things, we try to make deals with you, somehow thinking, hey, you do this, and then you keep your end of the bargain, God, and God, help, forgive us for being the kind of people who try to control you. And help us to just graciously receive you as good. Help us to receive you as God as Lord and as Savior. Deliver us from those idols which enslave us. Keep us from drinking from the poison water again and again and again. I pray for those who are here this morning who are who have made 
money an, an idol, who have made their jobs an idol, who have made their relationships an idol, who have made success an idol, power an idol, anything we've said, we want that. If we have that, then we'll be happy. God, deliver us from that so that we will just hold on to you and find our satisfaction in you alone. And God, I pray that we would we would not be shaped by our world and by our culture, but we'd shaped by you. So help us to know your character and your goodness. And most of all, help us to celebrate Jesus, the perfect judge who gave up his life so that we might live forever with you. So that we might be totally and completely forgiven of all our sin. So that we might be restored and filled with your Holy Spirit. So that we might live every moment of every day with your glory in mind. Knowing that you forgive us as we fail again and again. It's in your name we pray. Amen.